All right, so my name is Shalina Pearson, and today I'm going to be talking to you guys about the prison abolition movement, some of the great spokespeople of uh, abolition, and the effects that prisons have had on our society. And uh, yeah, let's just get into it. In the height of this political climate, where police are being cracked down on, I thought it would be fitting to look at the aftermath of mass incarceration and what some are doing to continue the abolitionist movement and the parallels of this movement then and now. So let us look at our history of prisons in the U.S. first off. Our prison system, as we know it today, was established in Philadelphia by Quakers who wanted to move past barbaric and cruel forms of punishment to reform offenders by using a set of time for self-reflection and to seek God. This was their way of rehabilitating prisoners. Charles Dickens actually criticized this, me this method, picking up on the fact that control and tampering of the mind was in fact greater forms of punishment than torture. It sounds silly at first, but it makes sense when you think about the fact that this form of imprisonment is so isolating and far away from civilization that, as Dickens mentions, it extorts few cries that human ears can hear. Now that's chilling. Okay, so that's the brief history of prisons. Now let's talk about the South and the abolitionist movement and its roots there. The abolitionist movement was an organized effort to end slavery. The term abolitionists are those who favor the end of an institution, but popularly known for ending the worst practice that Americans ever instituted. This is slavery. When policing was relatively a new institution in America, many early police organizations were created in order to capture escaped slaves and monitor both free and enslaved black Americans. Once the 13th Amendment that states neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the parties shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So except as a punishment for crime was the loophole to continue enslaving Black Americans after the abolition of slaves. So then our prison system came in handy to keep Black Americans enslaved and usually under false charges. And this is only if they were able to not get lynched, which is also comparable to public hangings, although they did not use any type of trial and black Americans were not, um, you know, they weren't protected under the law. So I have Noam Chomsky here, who is known to be uh, somewhat of a socialist. He's a linguist and a philosopher. 
And he gives some of his thoughts about the prison system and how it keeps people suppressed. Uh, in fact, what the criminal system is simply being used as a war against, uh, literally a war against an unwanted part of the population. Uh, a part of the population that used to be industrial workers, or at least have the opportunity to, and maybe work themselves up, but now just have no rights, because you don't need that anymore. You can get them cheaper somewhere else. Uh, so you got to get rid of them. Uh, that's a large part of what the drug war is about. The drug war has no effect on drugs. So Noam Chomsky talks about what our society does to these unwanted groups of civilization, which are those who primarily don't contribute to the means of production. But not only that, as I've mentioned, the history of slavery going into the 14th Amendment and using loopholes to imprison Black Americans even if it may not be as overt in today's age, just simply looking at the history of the prison system and the prison population, we, the U.S., imprisons more people than any other country in the world ever has. And that's including the Soviet Union in the height of the 1930s, and then even Nazi Germany. So you the rise of mass imprisonment um, primarily took place during the war on drugs. And Ronald Reagan was a known to be extremely racist. And he didn't even try to conceal it, also taking into account that time. So yeah, he was overtly racist. And the drug war was basically a race war. I mean, most definitely a race war. And you can look at this through the procedures of the drug war, beginning from police actions, you know, what types of people do you arrest based on what drug they're using, and then all the way into the prison system and the sentencing system, Black Americans always getting two times the sentence length, and then even post-release um, from the prison system. And then also, you bring that to Clinton and how he was involved. He's taking away rights of former prisoners, um, for example, living in public housing and the lack of budget there and then also the lack of rehabilitation. Um, the impossibility of getting back into your own community, getting a job, um, and then that in turn increases recidivism. So that is our cyclical prison system and the demographic that it targets. And uh, Angela Davis derives many connections to slavery and prisoners as well, starting with the disenfranchisement of prisoners. She talks about how a white contemporary of slavery would say, you know, of course, slaves couldn't vote. They weren't full citizens. And in today's age, people might remark, of course, prisoners can't vote. They aren't really citizens anymore. They're in prison. 
And another great point Angela Davis brings up is that in today's age, punishment via arrests and charges are consequences of racialized surveillance, that the communities which are usually of lower income are subject to higher police surveillance, which then in turn, of course, makes it that much more likely to produce bodies for punishment and more people in prison. And of course, this is a direct route when we're talking about systemic oppression. It's a direct route back to segregated neighborhoods and what the government did to create the slums. So overall, I think Angela Davis's matter of abolition needs to be more of a pressing matter today because I don't think many people can see the parallels of oppression during, let's say, uh, the Jim Crow era to today. The abolitionist movement's sole purpose is to break down a system of oppression, and the U.S. prison system has been and continues to be utilized to maintain dominance and control over specific populations, which is also what Noam Chomsky was talking about. So now that we have a little more background to the inequality of the prison system, you can see that this fuels an argument as to whether prisons are beneficial to our society. First off, according to Washington, the total cost of incarceration, including lost wages, costs borne by families of those incarcerated, and health impacts, is $1 trillion annually. With broken families high recidivism, that's a tough word, and low rehabilitative effects, it doesn't seem too promising of a system we got going here. The prison abolition movement has gained some traction with mainstream media and the apparent racism and classism in our law enforcement, that people are speaking out to the fact that reform is probably most definitely not enough. The spokesman, the spokesman, or I should probably say women, of the prison abolition movement includes Angela Davis, who I've mentioned a little bit, and Ruth Wilson Gilmore, both of which are the most popular contemporary abolitionists today. One of my favorite stories uh, about Ruth Wilson Gilmore, she was at a youth track at an environmental justice conference uh, where the youth was there and who could bring up worries that they have about the world. And, and she was a keynote speaker. And uh, before she went up, the kids went to her and, and asked her, you know, we hear that you're, you want to close prisons, that you don't believe in prisons. And they're like, well, what about people who hurt other people or who committed a really serious crime? And she brings up that in Spain, it's actually um, rare that people kill one another and that the uh, sentence for someone who does murder is only seven years. Because in Spain, the philosophy is that, you know, where life is precious, life is is precious. And so even a murderer who made the unfortunate decision of killing someone else, their life too is also precious. And so she went on 
that people in Spain have decided that life has enough value that they're not going to behave in, you know, huge like punitive measures and and life annihilating punishments toward people who hurt other people. And what that demonstrates is that people trying to solve their everyday problems behaving in a violent and life-threatening way is isn't a solution. And I think this really speaks on their lower rates of homicide in Spain. I think America, the United States has definitely something to learn from that. All right, so for the next portion of this podcast, I will dive into the three pillars of the abolitionist movement and their ideology of crime and punishment. Starting with the first pillar is moratorium, which means stopping an activity. And in the movement, that means to stop building cages. So according to Washington, we have seen a tremendous increase in the construction of federal and private prisons. Washington took the numbers from a Congressional Research Service report, and the findings are one new prison opening every 10 days since the 70s, which in turn led to a 700% increase in state prison populations. Therefore, abolitionists believe with fewer prison beds, fewer prisoners. Second pillar is decarceration, which means to get people out of prison. uh, Abolitionists see the reality that many people locked up right now have no threat to society, and therefore them being in prison does not serve their community. These individuals can be either, you know, junkies, simply need to be in health treatment facilities, and then also those who are in jail simply from using marijuana, which is legal either recreationally or medically in 34 states currently. The Drug Policy Alliance has estimated over 350,000 arrests for marijuana these past 10 years in just the state of California alone. Other strategies under this pillar is to create review processes to reevaluate sentence terms for so many of those who received an egregious amount of years for petty crimes due to mandatory minimum sentencing. And the third pillar is excarceration, which will serve to decriminalize many activities to divert people away from the prison industrial complex to begin with. Abolitionists believe that there are more humane ways of dealing with those who come into contact with law enforcement in the first place. There are already organizations out there in place where former gang members hit the streets in New York to mitigate gang gang violence before the police can show up. Some clear-cut ways to decrease those who enter the prison industrial complex is also to decriminalize mental health episodes, fight homelessness, and decriminalize drug use. So a little bit more about the ideology of prison abolition is similar to how critical criminologists view crime. They don't view crime as a disease that needs to be cured, but rather a product of a society that itself is sick from injustice and inequality. 
Abolitionists not only see that restorative justice is beneficial, but they go further to say that restorative justice is necessary, excuse me, that transformative justice is necessary. Transformative justice believes in fundamentally changing the large social structures that cause crime in the first place. The presumption is that it was it was not necessarily the offender's sole responsibility for committing the crime. Rather, there was some cause and effect of a larger dysfunction in our society. I have mentioned covert racism in law enforcement, which is most definitely a disease in our society. But as well as the global maldistribution of resources and wealth due to capitalism and our underemployed and stretched working class are some of the other diseases out of so many. The view of abolition can seem radical and a little out there, but the fact of the matter is we can't just stop at prison reform because that would mean accepting the way our society continues to function and only tweaking minor setbacks and putting band-aids on the system without looking at why our country has the highest incarceration rate in the world. And so I think abolition of prisons can seem idealistic, but we need to completely break down this prison industrial complex and create something new. And I think the only way to do that is to completely abolish it. I wanted to bring it over to our main woman, Professor Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who has spent 30 years studying exactly this topic and the suggestion as to what we need to do about our prison system and basically about our our country in general. The imagination about abolition of slavery seems to end at the moment where they think, oh, slaves were paid, so freedom is being able to get a wage, rather than Abolition is about undoing all of the relations of power and difference that make people vulnerable to not only enslavement or unfreedom, but also vulnerable to hunger, lousy health care, lousy public education, poison water, and all of the other things that modestly educated people in the prime of life and their extended families across the generations encounter in the United States today. All right, so I hope you got some new insights into the prison industrial complex and the connections to the abolition movement then and now. I hope you can be an advocate for prison abolition as well and see that we are talking about the bigger picture of fighting a system of oppression and that many fall victim to a society that is dysfunctional. I hope you can realize that we live in a consumerist world that thinks of people as disposable, but to remind yourself that life is precious. Thanks for joining me today. I am ending it off with a few more words by Professor Ruth Wilson Gilmore. I like to say that uh, to be an abolitionist, you just have to change one thing, everything.